What is up, you sexy podcast mother lovers? And yes, I did steal that line from the YouTuber Brandon Herrera, but I think it's okay because he doesn't even know I exist. But you know, I too am a firearms lover. I actually sold the damn things for five years professionally before I fell into this job I have today. So if he ever wants to collab on anything, hell, I'm down to party. But it's less than 30 seconds in and I'm already way off subject, probably because I am already on my third Voodoo Ranger of the night. So for those who don't know, I am Mike, this is Urban Legends and Mythology, and I have a great episode for you today. This is actually the 24th episode of Season 3. It's the episode right before the season finale. I have something awesome planned for that, you're gonna love it, but this one is just as awesome. I'm gonna tell you the story of Rasputin. Yes, once again, we are revisiting one of my my favorite countries, Russia, because my god, their folklore, their myths, their history is just so fascinating. I don't know what it is about them. It seems like one-third of this podcast is dedicated to Russia and the former Soviet Union, which is strange because I don't have a single Russian listener in my analytics. But I'm sure that's more to do with Papa Putin's media censorship than anything else. So earlier this season, I started with the origins of the Russian Empire when I started with Ivan the Terrible, the first czar. So I guess it's appropriate that I close out the season with Nicholas II and the mad monk Rasputin and the fall of the Russian Tsardom, which he actually predicted, but I'll get into that. So without further ado, this is a tale of the infamous dirty monk, the evil one himself, Rasputin. And as always, we are going to start right at the beginning. So January 21st, 1869, in Pokrovskoy, which is this tiny Russian village in the middle of nowhere in Yarkovsky district, Tyumen Oblast, Russia, Siberia. It's in Siberia. It's this little village that to this day has nothing but a church and a bunch of like log homes and maybe like, I don't know, 200 people. It doesn't even say on the Wikipedia page what the population is. It just gives some climate data for it. So it's so insignificant that without the fact that it's the birthplace of the infamous mad monk Rasputin, we wouldn't even know it existed. And for context, everybody says it's in western Siberia, but when you actually look at it on a map, it's actually kind of like like South Central Russia. It's kind of just north of Kazakhstan, so it kind of just takes away that idea that it's way out in the far wastes of Siberia. It's more central and south, but I digress. So Rasputin is born in this little tiny, like nothing village, which is smaller than the village I actually grew up in. And that is actually accurate. In Ohio, we don't have towns. We have villages and cities. And according to the Ohio State Constitution, the difference between a village and a city is whether or not you have 5,000 people living within that particular area. But he's born into this village of maybe like two or 300 people way out in the middle of absolute nowhere. Like, I've seen pictures of this village. It is literally like the middle of fucking nowhere, which just goes to show how vast Russia is. I mean, it is the largest nation on the planet. So he was born to a family of 
peasants in this village, and he was named for St. Gregory of Nicaea, whose feast was celebrated on 10 January. And that's his actual birth date, according to that calendar, January 10. But with our modern calendar, it's January 21st. It's just kind of how calendars are. They fluctuate and shift, and they're kind of weird. Now, there's not a whole lot known about his father and mother. We do know that his father was a man named Yefim, who was born in 1842 and died in 1916. He was a peasant farmer and a church elder who had been born in Pokrovsky. And I am sorry, I cannot say the name of that village without doing that fake Russian accent, so you're just going to have to accept it. And his mother was a woman by the name of Anna Parshukova, who's probably most likely from that same village. Because I can't imagine there's a lot of dating options out in the middle of nowhere, Siberia. And Yefim, he also kind of worked as kind of like a minor government official. He was like a government courier who would ferry people and goods between Tobolsk and Tiumen, which are two other places in Siberia that nobody's ever heard of, so let's move on. Now, the couple had like eight or nine children, all who had died in like childhood or adolescence, except for Rasputin. He was like the one who survived. So right there, just through that, he probably had some sense of a divine purpose, you know? You see, like, seven of your brothers and sisters die, and you're the only one that makes it to adulthood. You probably think, hey, maybe there's a divine reason for that. Especially when you're an illiterate Russian peasant who's only source of education was the Orthodox Church. Now, while there is a ton of myth and legend surrounding Rasputin, there's actually very little known about his youth and young adulthood. There are some legends and myths that he was possibly a horse thief and he blasphemed and all this stuff, but the reality is we don't know because no historical records really exist of him before he was in his 30s. All we really know is is that like most Siberian peasants, including his parents, he was not formally educated and remained illiterate well into his early adulthood. He would have most likely been just a stereotypical Russian peasant. He probably would have worked in the fields, gone to church, and lived a normal Russian peasant life. Now, there was some stories out there that his family were a bunch of horse thieves, and they did this as kind of a living, but there's no documentary evidence to back that up. And there was a story of one time he actually told the mayor of the little village he lived in basically to go fuck himself, and he ended up in jail or whatever for a night or two because of it. Now, whether or not that actually happened, we have no idea. Hell, it probably did. I remember when I was a young, dumb idiot, I probably would have said the same thing to anybody trying to put their authority on me, but the evidence doesn't really hold up that that ever actually happened. Happened. But all we really see from local archival records is that he was somewhat of an unruly youth and a drunk. Which, hey, it's not the worst thing in the world. I was an unruly youth and I'm a drunk to this day. But all that stuff about him blaspheming and bearing false witness and stealing horses and stuff, that's all wrapped up in myth. But what we do know is in 1886, he traveled to this little town or village or whatever of Abalak. And while he's there, he meets this peasant girl named Peraskoiva 
Dobrovina. And after a courtship of several months, they married in February of 1887, and she remained a faithful wife to him until his death, which is ironic given his infamous reputation as a poon hound. I mean, there is a reason why he was called Russia's greatest love machine in that song. But despite that, she remained loyal and devoted to him, and she moves to Pokrovsky, or whatever that place is called, and she lives there for the rest of her life, and they actually have seven children. However, only three of them survive to adulthood. Dmitri, who was born in 1895, Maria, who was born in 1898, and Varvara, who was born in 1900. However, despite all this, his life really changes in 1897 when he's about 28 years old. So by this time, he had already been married for 10 years. He's got a kid and another kid on his way, and he's just making his way in the world as a Russian peasant. But in 1897, he develops this interest in religion, like a renewed interest. And he leaves Pokrovsky and goes on pilgrimage. And nobody really knows why. He just decides to up and leave one day on a pilgrimage. Now, if you believe the myth or the urban legend, a lot of people say that he went on this pilgrimage to escape punishment for his role in a horse theft. Other people say it's because he had a vision of either Saint Mary or Saint Simeon of Verkhortri. While even others suggest it was because of the influence of this friend he had, he was a theological student named Melity Zabrowski. But for whatever reason, he goes on this pilgrimage. He kind of has this, like, spiritual awakening in life. Hell, to be honest, if we're speculating, it could have been a result of anything. It could have been a mental breakdown. It could have been because he wanted to know more about the world than what he experienced in this little nothing peasant village. It could have been any reason. Now, this wasn't the first pilgrimage Rasputin had ever been on. He had taken other shorter pilgrimages in the past to the monastery at Abalak, but it was this pilgrimage in 1897 where he visited the St. Nicholas Monastery at Vekrotoy. It was said that it really changed him as a person. He was profoundly humbled by an elder known as Makaray, and that he had actually spent several months there learning rudimentary reading and writing skills. However, he wouldn't stay very long, and later in life he would claim that some of the monks there engaged in homosexuality, and he actually criticized monastic life as too coercive. So he leaves this monastery, and he returns home, and he's a completely changed man. He's disheveled looking, he behaved differently, he became a vegetarian and sworn off alcohol, which, to be honest, are two things I could never do. Any religion that says I have to swear off me and never drink alcohol again, count me out. But it said after this kind of transformation, he decided that he was going to become a strenyek, a holy wanderer, a holy pilgrim, and he would travel to all these religious and monastic sites all over Russia and the Middle East, and basically become this crazed wandering holy man. 
man. So here we are. It's like 1900, and now he's a semi-literate, holy wandering man, and he's going to all these sites and places, and he's starting to gather this little group of followers, kind of like a cult leader. And here's where we have to enter a discussion about the Orthodox Church in Russia versus the Siberian Wastes and the more cosmopolitan cities like Moscow or St. Petersburg. So in the formalized cities of Western Russia, Moscow, St. Petersburg, etc., etc., I can't remember any of them off the top of my head because I'm drunk, Christian Orthodoxy is exactly how you would expect it to be. It's very ritualistic, it's ingrained in Christian, whatever, all that fairy tale garbage that they believe in, you know what I'm talking about. But out in places like Siberia, where those old, almost pagan-like myths were still being handed down from generation to generation, other interpretations were being intertwined with it. Some of these orthodox groups, which were associated with the church, however, involved traditional Russian Siberian traditions, which grew out of that old ancient paganism, was still alive and well at the end of the 19th century. So out in the east, it wasn't in entirely orthodox. It wasn't the same religion that you would find in the cities. It was very mystic and unorthodox. It may have had practices that were seen as kind of the dark arts in modern religion. There were alternative interpretations. One of the most famous is from the Klesri or Klesti or however it's said. They were essentially a sect which saw sinning as being a good thing and you sinned and then when you repented for that sin you would become closer to God or whatever. And the Clesti or whatever they were called, they were known for worshipping charismatic leaders and they rejected the priesthood and holy books. They practiced self-flagellation, speaking in tongues, and they would end their rituals or their services or whatever with a ritualistic orgy. And this would come at the end of this real ecstatic kind of like group dancing and frenzy and whatever and it was called like um, group sinning and the general idea was that you would have salvation after totally repenting for this group sin so sinning and seeking full repentance would bring you closer to God. Now there's no evidence that Rasputin had ever been part of this Klesky sect however we can see that he probably had met them at some point, this being Siberia and sparsely populated and he being a wandering monk. He probably was aware of their practices and their thought process, and it's possible that in interacting with groups like this, he incorporated some of that into his own personal beliefs and teachings, but at the end of the day, we don't really know. We do know that he was a notorious womanizer and poonhound. Now, whether he justified it through kind of the same idea, that would only be known by him. But the general point I'm making is, as a wandering priest or monk or whatever he was, he was picking up all these other ideas and kind of creating this mysticism around himself. What he was doing wasn't the traditional traditional western cosmopolitan style of orthodoxy. It was this mystic style that was very intriguing to people towards the end of the 19th century, which is why he becomes so popular when he 
finally visits the West. So by the early 1900s, Rasputin, he had developed this small circle of followers around him, and he's becoming somewhat well-known across all these little tiny nothing villages in western Siberia. And at this time, he's already starting to make a few enemies and get a few criticizers out there because he's going against that natural grain of the traditional church. Now, this initial circle of his followers were basically his family members and some local Local peasants around Pokrovsky who would pray with him on Sundays and other local religious holidays in this makeshift little chapel that he had set up in his father Yefim's root cellar. And it was during these prayer sessions that the rumors started flying about Rasputin and his group of followers because they were singing strange songs, which to be honest were most likely just songs that he had heard on his travels and brought back and these other peasants had never heard of before because they've never left their dumb little village. But one of the more damning rumors that was going around, which was being spread by local peasants and the local priest who had like kind of gained his ire, was that his female followers were ritualistically washing him in the nude, and even rumors that Rasputin had joined the Klesky. However, there's never been any evidence to substantiate that at all. Which, like I said, throughout his travels as a wandering monk, he had probably met with the Klesky, he probably interacted with them. Hell, he was probably even invited to one or two of their little prayer sessions just to see what they were all about. But to this day, there's no evidence that was ever found that he had ever joined that sect. But this is an all-too-familiar theme that we see throughout history, especially in an isolated village where a formal organization like a church is involved. You have the church, which is the established dominant status quo, but then you have this guy or this group of people who are doing things that are outside of that, and it draws a lot of ire and hatred from the people who are used to and want to make maintain that status quo. Very similar to what we saw in the 1690s during the Salem Witch Trials. You had this isolated little village, and you had this pettiness and infighting over maintaining the status quo. So that gets the rumor mill flying that these people are evil and they're involved in dark magic or whatever. Now Salem is a more extreme version of what's going on here, but it's the same idea. He's teaching stuff that isn't quite in line with the traditional Orthodox Church and he's gaining followers and the traditional Orthodox Church doesn't really like it. So the priest of that church along with his closest followers starts spreading rumors. And we will see throughout the rest of his story that a lot of what surrounds his story is rumor and wild accusation and myth, which was brought on simply because this guy did not follow the status quo. So during this time, his popularity is growing, and it really takes off when he visits Kazan sometime around 1904-1905. Now, Kazan is actually a very large metropolitan city. I mean, today it has like 2 million people. It's like the largest city on the Volga, if I'm not mistaken. And a lot of this is not only just to do with the rumors that were spreading around, but a lot of it is to do with something else, his charisma. He was a very charismatic guy, and charismatic people just have a tendency to attract 
pretty much everybody. And this is kind of how his word spread throughout. So he's traveling throughout the city and he's gaining this reputation as a wise traveling monk, a Srenyek. And it was said that he was really good at helping people resolve their spiritual crises and anxieties. It was believed that for a while that he could cure horses of ailments and then that moved on to people believing that he could cure them of their ailments. So he's doing like this spiritual healing stuff, which to be honest, that stuff's more rooted in the realm of psychology than magic. Him being a charismatic wise monk or portraying himself as a charismatic wise monk probably gave him that natural ability to kind of calm people down. It probably gave him a natural ability to kind of read a situation in a logical way, which could temper a lot of anxieties and a lot of people are attracted to that and if you're basically a backwoods peasant, you might see that as some kind of divine work. And of course during this whole time there's rumors flying around that he was having sets with his female followers, which given his reputation he probably was. Which, you know, he would counteract with that old card. Well, those are just rumors being spread by the people that either don't believe me or don't like what I'm doing. But despite those rumors, he did start to make a favorable impression on several of the local religious leaders. One was this, like, supreme bishop named Andre and this bishop named Christanos. And it was through these guys where he actually obtained a letter of recommendation to Bishop Sergei. Now, Bishop Sergei was the rector of theological seminary at Alexandra Nevsky Monastery in St. Petersburg. So this is like the big time. This is like his end to the upper aristocracy of Russia. So it was here when Rasputin, he decides to travel to St. Petersburg, where he would basically spend most of the rest of his life. Now, some of you may have noticed that I have yet to mention any of the troubles that were going on in Russia at the turn of the 20th century. As we know, 1905 was the Russian Revolution, the first Russian Revolution, which saw a lot of the Tsar's powers stripped, the formation of the Duma, and all this political and civil upheaval and unrest. And hell, let's not forget, for the past 40 years there had been political assassinations and a lot of chaos going on in the Russian government at the time. And the reason I haven't mentioned any of that yet was because that was happening in the cities of the West, and Rasputin's life story up to this point had largely taken place in western Siberia, in a series of isolated little villages and towns over a thousand miles removed from all this. The 1905 Russian Revolution and all the political reforms and stuff, well that may as well have been on another planet as far as these people were concerned. And even throughout most of the next part of his story, we don't see a lot of that political influence coming into play. It's not really until the end of his life when we start seeing intermixing of politics and his life. And I think a big reason for that is just one key word, isolation. Peasants in Siberia were completely isolated from the problems that were going on in the cities. And hell, even the aristocracy and the Romanov 
Romanovs in their palaces were isolated from the common people, and the prominent members of the church itself were largely isolated from what was going on on the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg at the time. So Rasputin's story is really a story of someone who is really living outside of that world, that political world, that revolutionary world which would come to engulf Russia in the next several years. But for now, Rasputin, he's traveling to St. Petersburg, and upon arriving at the Alexandra Nevsky Monastery, he meets with these church leaders. One is this Supreme Bishop or Archbishop Theophan. He was the inspector of the Theological Seminary, who was well-connected in St. Petersburg society, and later actually served as a confessor to the imperial family. Now, Theophan, he was so impressed with Rasputin that he invited him to his personal home, and he was like, his biggest PR guy and supporter. He introduced them to all the aristocrats. He was like showing up at salons with them. And at these salons with these aristocrats, he would discuss all this theology. And Rasputin would be so charismatic and he's so mysterious that he's literally just like holding court at these salons. And the aristocracy of St. Petersburg are eating up all this mysticism and stuff. Because another thing we have to remember is this is the height of spiritualism. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole thing on spiritualism. I actually have several future episodes dedicated to subjects based on that. But spiritualism was really all the rage against these aristocratic families in St. Petersburg. And these people were obsessed with them. Here was this guy who had this scraggly beard and these wild eyes and stank like a goat from the middle of nowhere western Siberia who possibly possessed these healing powers and this deep occult-like knowledge of theology. A man who was an outsider of the former church because remember he never held a formal church position. He was just a wandering monk. It would be no different if like just you or I just decided to become a scraggly hobo and run around and preach all this doctrine to people, but they were eating it up. They loved it, and they especially loved it because he was a Russian. Because up until this point, all these occult mystics that would come into Russia, they were all from, like, France and England, and a lot of them were seen found out to be charlatans and frauds. But the fact that he was a charismatic Russian probably put him at ease because it's that tribal mentality. He's a Russian. He's like us. He's part of our tribe or whatever, so he gets it. So I'm going to trust him more. So this was a great time for Rasputin. He's holding court at these salons. He's talking theology. He's indulging in food and drink. And you know he's indulging in sets. He's like buying prostitutes left and right. I mean, the guy's got the aristocracy eating up every word he's saying, and he's making very important friends and very powerful contacts during this time. Some of the people he comes to associate with are the Black Princesses, Matilda and Anastasia of Montenegro, who had married cousins of Tsar Nicholas, as well as Grand Duke Nikolovich and Prince George Maximilianovich Romanovsky. And these latter two were really instrumental in introducing Rasputin to the Tsar and his family. And it was on 1 November 1905 at the Peterhof Palace, where Nicholas, he records the event in his diary, writing that he and his empress consort Alexandria Fedronova had, quote, made the 
acquaintance of a man of God, Gregory from Tobolsk province, end quote. And from this first encounter, it's said that it was most likely just a meeting. They were interested in meeting with him because he was this mystic from Russia, from Siberia, and it was probably really interesting news at the time. Now, to be honest, Nicholas II and Alexandria, they weren't the shiniest diamonds in the jewelry box, if you catch my drift. They could be easily manipulated and duped. Nicholas II was actually very short-sighted. He was a very well-intentioned, but a very poor ruler, and he was very incapable of handling the challenges facing his nation at the time. He was actually out of touch with a lot of people on the common ground. And part of this is simply to do with just this simple naivety that came from his isolation in these palaces away from his people. And his wife, Alexandria, was even worse. She truly believed in that, like, divine right of God that they should rule the empire. She sowed a somewhat discontent and detest for her subjects. She extremely isolated herself against her subjects. And the mere fact that she had German and British ancestry cast her as kind of an outsider, which caused her to isolate even more. However, she wasn't above being duped because she had consulted with mystics in the past, one who did it turned out to be a fraud and was actually expelled from Russia. And this was because her only son, Alexei, had inherited hemophilia through his mother's line and he was a very weak child. And hemophilia is simply just a blood disorder where your blood does not clot. And in 1905, it could be fatal, and this was a state secret. So they would do anything to keep the young Tsar-to-be alive and as healthy as possible. And if that meant going with these mystic healers, then so be it. Which is why she latches onto Rasputin later in our story. So shortly after this first meeting, Rasputin actually returns home for a few months to Pavlovsky, and he doesn't return again until July of 1906. And it is upon his return when he sends a telegram to the Tsar asking if he can present him with an icon of Saint Simon, to which the Tsar agrees to the meeting, and they actually meet twice. They meet once on the 18th of July, and again in October. October when he first meets the rest of the royal family. So it was around this time, 1906, when the Tsar and his wife, they become 100% convinced that Rasputin, this mad monk from Siberia, had this divine healing power that they could use to heal their son of his hemophilia. Now, why they believe this, nobody really knows. They could have just been easily manipulated. But, you know, faith is a powerful thing, and people will believe whatever you convince them of if their faith is strong enough. But it was in October of 1906, during the second meeting, when he was first asked to pray for the health of Alexei, to which he obliges. And it was from this point on where he is forever intertwined with the Romanov dynasty and the fall of that dynasty, because his inexplicable ability to heal the young Alexei from the pain of his hemophilia made him an indispensable member of the royal entourage, and it was said that Alexandria had a passionate attachment to him. And this isn't just to do with his charisma or his divinity or the fact that she was just an idiot. This is mostly to do with something else, preserving the Romanov male line. 
Because remember, this is an absolute monarchy and power goes from the male to the male. Alexandria was already not a popular Tsarina. And she had already had four daughters before she had Alexei, so keeping Alexei alive and as healthy as possible so he could inherit the throne was like the number one thing in her life. So when this miraculous healer comes around and can ease his pain and suffering, she latches onto him and she latches onto him hard. Because in her eyes, this man is protecting the future of the throne, the future of the monarchy, the future of the dynasty, and the future of Russia as we know it. However, unfortunately for our Tsarina, this attachment would lead to rumor, which would lead to even more hatred towards her and the monarch as time went on. Of course, this all works out for Rasputin in the short run because by 1906, he has considerable status and power at court, and Nicholas appointed him as the lamplighter who was charged with keeping the lamps lit before the religious icons in the palace which gave him unabated access to anywhere and everywhere in the royal palace. And by December of 1906, he had become so close to the royal family that he was actually able to ask special favors from Nicholas the Tsar himself. And the special favor he asked was that he change his surname to Novi, or New, so he would be Rasputin New. And it's said that with the speed at which Nicholas expedited the process to get that done, just showed how close he was to the Tsar. He had the Tsar's full trust. However, at this point, it does draw into question how much power and influence Rasputin did have over the royal family at this time, because the rumors would start circulating that he was influencing political decisions and national decisions. Well, there's no evidence to ever suggest that. A lot of that was speculation and rumor, but you know, you put somebody like that that close to a king, you're always going to wonder. But what we do know is that he uses this position in the past to full effect and he starts accepting bribes and sexual favors from his admirers and anybody else who was trying to get an in with the royal family. And it's during this time he's picking up more followers and more advocates. But it's also during this time when he starts to become a very controversial figure and starts collecting enemies as well. Which is what happens at any royal court. You've gained the emperor's favor, you're gonna get some enemies along the way. And that's where a lot of these wild stories and rumors come from. Because let's not forget, court politics are just as disgusting as what we see in like Game of Thrones for example, if not even more so. For example, he was accused by his his enemies of heresy spreading false prophecy. One of his followers in 1909 accused him of sexual assault. His local cleric in his home village of Petrovsky accused him of being a heretic. The bishop of Tobolsk launched an inquest into his activities accusing him of spreading false Clist-like doctrines. And even the Prime Minister and the Tsar's secret police started to investigate his activities. And the secret police would investigate and follow him around and report on him every day for the rest of his life up until his assassination. However, no matter what they did or what they reported on, they could not break the stranglehold he had over the minds of the Tsar and Tsarina because he could heal Alexei, which he did on multiple occasions. 
occasions, some notable occasions were in the spring of 1907, Alexei had this fall or something, and she had asked them to pray for him, and he was fine the next day. During the summer of 1912, a little bit later in our timeline, Alexei developed a hemorrhage in his thigh and groin after a jolting carriage ride near the Imperial Hunting Grounds, which caused a large hematoma, and in severe pain and delirious with fever, the Tsarevich appeared close to death. So at this time, Rasputin was away in Siberia, so the Tsarina sent a telegram to him asking him to pray for young Alexei. Rasputin quickly writes back, quote, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much, end quote. Now, the next day, nothing had really changed, but the day after that, Alexei was perfectly fine. His bleeding had stopped, and the doctors who were with him are quoted as saying the recovery was wholly inexplicable from a medical point of view. However, later research into this incident really comes from that last line, do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. Without the constant worrying and bickering and interference, when it came to the doctors, it probably allowed him and his mother to become a little less stressed, and it probably also allowed the aspirin that they were giving him for his pain to work its way out of his system so his blood could finally clot because aspirin is a blood thinner, but at the time the doctors probably didn't know that. Now outside of this, yeah, that looks like a miracle when you have a calming presence and you're able to kind of stifle all the chaos and then your patient miraculously heals, it really comes back to that kind of psychological approach to it all. However, with Alexei's condition being a state secret, the common people or the common aristocracy looking in don't really know what to make of this mad monk who has such great power and influence over the Tsar and Tsarina, which is why the rumors continue to fly and the accusations continue to fly. Even rumors and accusations that he was having an affair with the Tsar and that he had assaulted the Grand Duchesses did nothing to break his hold over the royal family, so the people thought that he had to have some kind of like demonic hold over them or something. Something just wasn't right here. But by 1914, Rasputin was kind of at the peak of his power and influence, and it's believed at this point he was even starting to attempt to advise the royal family on political affairs. However, the evidence does show that Nicholas II never followed any of Rasputin's advice on anything when it came to the realm of politics, so I guess in a way that's good, but it did spell the downfall of Russia ultimately anyway. So for context, in July of 1914, Rasputin was at home in that little nothing village of Pokrovsky, and he's standing just outside of his home when a 33-year-old peasant woman named Chuyona Gusiva attempted to assassinate him by stabbing him in the stomach. Now, Gusava claimed that she acted alone because in the press and in the media are all these rumors and speculation about Rasputin. The guy and his depravity is literally national news because at this time, Russia had a free press. And Gusava, she claimed that she had been reading about him in the newspaper and she believed him to be a false prophet and maybe even the Antichrist. And she stabbed him in an attempt to kill him. Now, she was 
actually found to be not responsible for her actions by reason of insanity. However, it's also noted that she was a follower of a former priest by the name of Iliador, who initially supported Rasputin before denouncing his escapades and self-aggrandizement in December of 1911. And he was a part of this group of establishment figures who attempted to drive a wedge between Rasputin and the royal family. And for this effort, he was banished from St. Petersburg and ultimately defrocked. So a lot of people think that this was a political assassination attempt, which makes a lot of sense. However, Iliador fled the country before he could ever be questioned, which, you know, sounds guilty to me. But, you know, World War I was kicking off, and a lot of people were fleeing Russia at the time. But it was later in July, while he was still laying in bed in Siberia recovering from this stab wound, that he sends a telegram to Nicholas II, and this telegram reads as follows. Let Papa not plan war, for with the war will come the end of Russia and yourselves, and you will lose to the last man, end quote. However, the Tsar did not listen. It was said that when he had the telegram in his hand and read it, he angrily tore it to pieces. So while the Tsar may have seen him as prominent in religious affairs or personal affairs involving his son, he didn't see him as worthy of having any say or influence on the affairs of the state when it came to war or politics or anything like that. However, we have to remember at the time Tsar Nicholas is an emperor who is completely out of touch with the political affairs of his own state. This is a guy who for the last, the February Revolution of 1905, had been trying to claw back legislative power that he had lost to the Duma during that compromise. He and his wife still believed in the divine authority of kings, and who was this peasant from the middle of Siberia to tell him how to run his country? However, World War I would go disastrous for Russia, and it was shortly after when Nicholas II would take full command of his forces out on the front lines in order to try to revive what was being lost. And it is at this time when Nicholas is commanding his forces that the Tsarina, is basically at home making decisions as the head of state. This German-British empress and this mad monk, this peasant from Siberia, were thought to have complete political control of Russia at the time. At least that's how it was portrayed in the public eye. So at that point, all faith in the Tsardom and the royal family had collapsed. And this had flown beyond just rumor because in November of 1916 in the Duma, a politician by the name of Vladimir Puskovich, he held that the Tsar's minister had been turned into marionettes, marionettes whose threads have been taken firmly in the hand of Rasputin and the Empress, the evil genius of Russia, and Tsarina, who remained a German on the Russian throne, alien to the country and its people. And at this point, it was pretty much all over for the royal family and their infamous friend, the depraved one, the Mad Monk. At this point, the people thought all was lost unless they got rid of this depraved Mad Monk who had so much power and influence over the royal family. So, 
what came to pass was later in 1916, a group of nobles led by this Pershkovic guy, along with Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich and Prince Felix Yusupov, hatch a plan to rid the country of the Mad Monk altogether, and hopefully, if they can, save the monarchy. So this is how it all went down. On December 17, 1916, real early in the morning, Rasputin was invited to Yusupov's palace, essentially for a party, a drunken, debauched party that would probably end in an orgy, which was something Rasputin could not resist. So according to Yusupov's account, and this is his account verbatim, Rasputin was invited to his palace shortly after midnight and ushered into the basement. Yusupov offered tea and cakes, which had been laced with cyanide. After initially refusing the cakes, Rasputin began to eat them, and to Yusupov's surprise, appeared to be unaffected by the poison. Rasputin then asked for some Madeira wine, which had also been laced with cyanide, and drank three glasses but still showed no signs of distress. At around 2.30 a.m., Yusupov excused himself to go upstairs where he and fellow conspirators were waiting. He took a revolver from Pavlovich and returned to the basement and told Rasputin that he'd better look at the crucifix and say a prayer, referring to a crucifix in the room, and then shot him once in the chest. The conspirators then drove to Rasputin's apartment with Suck Holton wearing Rasputin's coat and hat in an attempt to make it look as though Rasputin had returned home that night. Upon returning to his palace, Yusupov went back to the basement to ensure that Rasputin was dead. Suddenly, Rasputin leaped up and attacked Yusupov, who freed himself with some effort and fled upstairs. Rasputin followed Yusupov into the palace's courtyard, where he was shot by Purishkovit. He collapsed into a snowbank. The conspirators then wrapped his body in cloth, drove it to the Petrovsky Bridge, and dropped it in the Little Nikvika River. In the aftermath of this, news of Rasputin's death spread like wildfire. Even before his body was found, everybody already knew he was dead. This was because Perishkovic spoke openly about the murder to two soldiers and a policeman who were investigating reports of shots shortly after the event. And as early as the very next morning, the police were already investigating the murder. So it was actually around January 1st when two workmen discovered blood on the railing of the Petrovsky Bridge and a boot on the ice below that police began searching that area. And Rasputin's body was found under the river ice on January 1st, approximately 200 meters down stream from the bridge. Now, after his body was found, it was taken to Dmitry Korsatov, who was the city's senior autopsy surgeon. He examined the body, and his report since has been lost, but he later stated that the body had shown signs of severe trauma, including three gunshot wounds, one at close range to the forehead, a slice wound to his left side, and other injuries, many of which Korsatov felt had been sustained post-mortem. Korsatov did find a single bullet in Rasputin's body, but it was too badly deformed and of a type too widely used to trace. He found no evidence that Rasputin had been poisoned, and furthermore, he found no water in Rasputin's lungs, which kind of retorts that idea that he was still alive when he was thrown into the water. Now, the reality of Rasputin's death was simply that he was shot in the head three times, most likely while kneeling down to pray at that crucifix during that party. The story 
that Yusupov gives is highly exaggerated because everything about Rasputin was highly exaggerated. They thought that he was this demon that had this hold on the whole of the Russian state. And he essentially, going back to the religious stuff, had to play the role of David taking down Goliath, who threatened the future of his nation. Now, Rasputin's funeral was on January 2nd and was attended only by the imperial family and a few of their intimates. Rasputin's wife, mistresses, and children were actually not invited. And at this time, they still saw him as a holy man and a martyr for the Russian state. The imperial family had even planned on building a church over his gravesite. However, his body was exhumed and burned by a detachment of soldiers on the order of Alexander Krensky shortly after Nicholas abdicated the throne in March of 1917, thus ending the life of the Mad Monk and launching his story into legend. However, it gets even stranger, because Rasputin actually prophesized his death, and depending on the matter of his death, he actually prophesized what would happen to Russia afterwards, and this is something that is really out there. Now, on this show, I really do try to discern the reality behind the urban legends and the myths, but the reality of this prophecy really, I don't have an explanation for unless it was just really good intuition on Rasputin's part, and that prophecy goes as follows, quote, if I am killed by simple robbers of the Russian peasants, Tsar Nicholas should not fear for his fate, and the descendants of the Romanovs will reign a hundred years and more. However, if the murder is committed by nobles, relatives of the Tsar, then the future of Russia and the imperial family will be terrible. The nobles will flee the country, and the relatives of the Tsar will not be alive in two years. Brothers will rise up against brothers and will kill each other. Rasputin died in December of 1916. By March of 1917, Nicholas had abdicated the throne. Many of his family were fleeing west towards Europe. And on July 17, 1918, Nicholas II and his family were executed by firing squad. The country descended into the Russian Civil War, and the empire had collapsed. So, what is there really left to say about Rasputin, the Mad Monk, that infamous peasant from Siberia who took hold of the royal family and predicted the fall of the Russian Empire? To be honest, not much. All we really know about him mostly comes from the urban legend and the court rumors and the myths that surrounded him. A lot of the stories associated with his life have been easily debunked when we read through the records that were being kept of his daily activities by the secret police, for example. Of course, he had to be seen as larger than life and the monster who destroyed the regime. His enemies had to paint him that way. But to be honest, his political stranglehold that led to this paranoia that led to his assassination didn't actually exist. Sure, he had some insights on politics, but his insights were largely ignored by the aristocracy and the royal family. Now, he was privileged to have knowledge of this great state's secret and to be the one to come in and spiritually heal their son. And to their dying day, they did trust him fully and possibly had a willing blindness to his depraved activities. But in their mindset, in their worldview, he was nothing more than a holy man. However, that state secret 
secret and this mad holy man's influence on this family led the general population to believe in all these conspiracies around him that he was possibly manipulating the affairs of state from the shadows and how dare this disgusting filthy peasant come in and declare what should and should not be and it is true that the orthodox church did eventually turn on him after they found out about his activities this was a guy who loved to drink he loved to indulge and he was known to frequent prostitutes sometimes many a day and that's not a good image to cultivate when you're running a church because that's very influential but naturally at some point they denounced him and at the end of the day he was kind of the last representative of an entire system that was denounced he was one of the last dying breaths of old imperial russia and he becomes a great scapegoat to blame for or the fall of Russia. And without droning on for three hours about the nuanced politics around late Imperial Russia, that's really all I have to say for this episode. So once again, this is Mike. I do thank you for listening. And if you're a fan of the show, part of the Death Bunny Squad, just do me a solid and share this with your friends. Because I say it all the time and I'm gonna say it again, word of mouth is truly the way that this podcast grows. Because I can spam links on social media all day long. I can go around handing out business cards and stickers, but not a lot of that actually drives traffic to my show. What really drives traffic is you guys, you listeners, you ones who are out there every episode listening and offering suggestions and giving great feedback. You guys are really the backbone of what it takes when it comes to promoting this show. So in that sense, I truly do thank you and an even bigger shout out to those people who go to that support this podcast link on Spotify. That really does help out the show whenever you donate because every dime I get from that just goes right back into making this show better it goes into me I don't know buying a new book to do further research or upgrading equipment that really does help a lot one last thing the season finale is next week I have been working on this project for a very long time and I am finally glad to get it out to y'all it's gonna be awesome so be sure to stay tuned for that as always in between seasons I'm going on like a two to three week hiatus however I will still be uploading some stuff in that hiatus it's kind of some stuff I have on the back burner that was like a failed pilot for another series and a couple other things that I just kind of have hanging around. So be sure to check that out as well and I will see you in the next one.